Yesterday was Tuesday, which makes today Wednesday because on Wednesday we do podcasts. I am here in Loxton with the lovely Karen Spilsbury. Welcome. Thank you, Kiara. It's really nice to have you here and to be here. Yeah. So for everybody listening at home, who are you? Well, I suppose the easy answer is uh, I am a counsellor and a therapist and I have a practice in Loxton. And on a deeper level, I suppose I'm a bit of a deep thinking person, human, and quite intuitive. I have a lot of compassion, which probably are good uh, traits to have when you're a counsellor. But also I really like to understand things and how things came to be the way they are. So a bit of an analytical mind so I'm not those first few points that you mentioned (laughs) but I am definitely somebody that wants to know why how why etc so have you always been a compassionate person and an overthinker I'm going to guess yes uh, absolutely so from really young I would have a lot of compassion even in primary school I remember if someone was being excluded or bullied, I would gravitate towards them and sit and hold their hand and just be with them or ask them what happened. And yeah, so a bit of a um, yeah open heart in terms of that. Do you think that comes from the way that you were brought up or your upbringing or is it just because, you know, some people are just born like that, aren't they? I imagine that's the case. And I suppose it would be a, a a combination of many things and partly personality partly experiences um yeah but it's just uh, that's how I remember being from, yeah. from young so yeah yeah I was um brought up as an only child and so I was always around older people because I didn't have any brothers or sisters and so I've always sort of had to be uh, uh, more of an adult just had adult conversations and things like that I've certainly never been compassionate never worried about somebody but I think as I get older I do care more but only when it's genuine mm-hmm. I don't know do you find being a counsellor you always have to be compassionate or sometimes do you need to tell people the hard truths well I think it's about delivering um, messages in an appropriate and supportive way so yes sometimes you know Uh, reality messages are in there and it's about how to um, you know just have that softer approach so that there's not resistance to what you're saying and so that people can get what they need out of the information yeah so how long ago did you get into counseling so I started off as a case manager um, you know I think many years ago I haven't actually uh, worked add, it out. added up the numbers it's of what's happening exactly like in, in my head. <laughs> um, so even though I wasn't didn't have that as my title I re- recognized once I started my training that that actually is what I was doing with a lot of the young people I worked with who did you work for like a government organization or something I worked with a lot of different not-for-profits yep. so four or five different not-for-profit organizations and supporting kids at risk at schools who were disengaged so I think a lot of my uh, sort of skills in terms of questioning and supporting came back from back there and uh, then I uh, started my own practice called Wellbeing Support Services and still worked within the schools but in a different role and then eventually went into uh, more adult work and grief work um, and expanded in that direction so still work with all ages but um, yeah the, the counselling 
title came a bit later. Yeah. Mm. So is that something that you went on and studied further or did you have to have your counselling degree when you were working in the school? So I I started my psych degree um, while I was working as a case manager and I was doing it part-time. I think it took me about eight eight years to complete. Um, and I don't know uh, if I've stuck at anything for eight years. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a hard slog, especially statistics, which are not my forte. Um, so there was a lot of tears of, over that, that, that unit, but I got through. Um, so yeah, I was studying psychology throughout that. And then um, towards the end of my psych degree, I started, I did a diploma in counselling. And then that led to studying uh, something called transactional analysis, which is the uh, sort of theory that I that overarching theory of how I work with clients. So, yeah, so wow. it's so been an ex- extensive long-term venture. Yeah. So are you a psychologist? Is, when do you study psychology, is that what you end up with? or is, uh, what's your? So, no, I'm not a psychologist. Psychologists um, have their base degree and then they go, in, go into doing yeah. uh, further study. And I chose to uh, do uh, advanced training in transactional analysis. Yeah, so, so you've yeah. sort of found your niche and what you're really good at and followed that yeah I just went with my intuition um I sort of went to an initial training and it really resonated with me and it made a lot of sense and it was it's very experiential very practical and the language is really simple and easy to understand so um that was the way I decided to go but I I thought it would be good to finish the degree yes (laughs) let's move on let's do something with it so um you said that you particularly um started with children Mm -hmm. Is that where a passion lies? And, and grief, I believe, is what you sort of specialise in? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. is not the right word. I, I, my understanding is that a lot of the work of uh, sort of psychotherapy is about loss. Um, but I do have a particular interest in supporting people who have experienced significant loss due to my personal experience. But initially, uh, but I have always been interested in talking therapy I suppose mm-hmm. or uh, and I started out with a job offer from the with the case management with the young people so yeah yeah so your personal experience is that something that you're comfortable to share with everybody that you were listening yeah, yeah yep. absolutely so I only know this because I had um I went to school with your I believe eldest daughter so that's the only reason why I know um the story but heaps of people won't so you lost a child didn't you yeah yes we did so unfortunately in 2011 my daughter Tiana passed away um, and that was obviously very traumatic for myself and and my family and I think partly that's uh, the reason that my interest went in the direction of um, therapy and counselling uh, after the case management gig in, in the beginning uh, so I, th- I just felt that I wanted to do something meaningful with that experience and um, and support other people who w- were going through similar things to myself. Yeah. Did it take? Because how old was you? How old was Tiana when she passed? So she was thirteen when she died. Yeah. And how long did it take before you realised that you could share what you've gone through? with other people and obviously help them move forward mm-hmm. did it take some time I think even uh, right early on I had a sense of I, I want this experience to 
I want something good to come from this experience. So there was an enormous amount of pain and enormous amount of suffering and I really didn't have a map to navigate all those emotions and feelings. And But I had a sense right from the start that um, I don't want this to be for nothing. So in some sort of organic way it felt like um, the seed for helping others was was sown very early um, and perhaps I had a sense as well that my healing that was going to be integrated with my healing yeah and yeah. in this crazy way Tiana gets to be a part of the journey and I know that that's not what you wanted but it's an amazing yeah. way of looking at it isn't it like you get to not push your uh, experience onto other people but actually understand from I think it does bring a, a unique uh, like a, a, you resonate with someone who's experienced something similar to you so in some ways it can make supporting other people easier in a way because there's a, an instant sort of connection or understanding but then I suppose in other ways it can uh, sometimes make it difficult because perhaps people are trying to take care of you because they know that you've had that experience but overall I think um, it brings a certain um, level of trust that on some level um, the other person gets it and I know for me after losing Tiana I was really craving sort of that connection with like uh, people like me and to see that they had survived and that they were okay and that they could function and be happy. And um, and even though it's sort of was going to, had and did change me as a person, that my essence was still going to be the same and that, um, and yeah, that, that I was gonna be okay. It's interesting that you say that you wanted to meet or be around other people that were in a similar situation to you because I remember talking to Tess about how she went through her miscarriage and she's like nobody spoke about it and it was such a taboo topic Mm -hmm. um but then as soon as she said something all of these people commented do you find that there is understanding with people that have dealt with a similar situation uh absolutely and I had a similar experience after Tiana died so I'd have people simply come up to me and start to tell me about their experience of loss and sometimes it would be an experience of loss that had happened 10 years earlier that they hadn't really got to talk about before. So potentially that's also where the sort of recognition that there seems like there's uh, a bit of a hole in our culture about where do these, where do these conversations happen and, um, and how can I make this available for other people as well. So when people aren't I don't know what's the cue for somebody to know that they need to talk to somebody is there a cue is there a sign that goes okay well maybe I might need to talk to somebody about the way I'm feeling Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely individual so uh, for me it was about recognizing the sense of overwhelm and isolation and acknowledging that perhaps a professional could uh, give me some support in a in a way in a different way than friends and family could, uh, and sort of acknowledging that no one could bring Tiana back, obviously, but perhaps some 
support for me to manage the feelings um, would be really beneficial and also an acknowledgement that um, you know how I was managing affected my children my friends and all the people around me so it was a bit of uh, giving myself permission to have that self-care and and almost a gift to myself of um, you know I feel wobbly I don't really know how to negotiate this experience and how could I it's not something that happens uh, very often thank goodness thank goodness yeah but even though it does happen it happens to a lot of people you only have to go through the cemetery to see that there's a lot of children that die and young people um, so so yeah did I answer the question so <laughs> I don't know because I got caught up in the I got caught up in the sentence too but I think what we were saying before we started the podcast I was like well what does your average client I don't know if that's the right word Mm -hmm. come in for and you're like Kyra it's not about a major event in a lot of cases not a lot of like my clients don't necessarily lose children they don't have a traumatic event it's just something Mm -hmm. and knowing when to ask for help or knowing that it's okay that's what we're trying to get across, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think culturally we are shifting away from the sort of idea that you need to be in crisis to go and seek help. And uh, even sometimes sort of very, um, like lots of experiences in life involve loss. Even positive experiences can involve loss. For example, if you get married, your identity changes in a way and perhaps your ind- sense of independence might change. So even positive experiences can have us feeling a little overwhelmed or feeling a bit wobbly or extra emotional. So my sense of it is, you know, you don't have to have an enormous crisis to go and get some support. Uh, It can be just something really helpful. You just saying that just resonated with me in the way that at least when you have a loss, you have a reason to feel like shit. And I'm not saying that you should have to, mm-hmm. but when you have one of those positive losses, people are like, you should be happy. Why aren't you happy? And they'd almost be the hardest to deal with. Well, that's a massive misperception, I think, that um, you know we're sort of projecting onto other people what their reality should be and when we're not being real about how life can be. So, um, and that's what I'm all about in essence is let's get real about it and it's actually okay if you had a baby but you feel sad that's normal and you know let's talk about it and explore it and and pro- can I help you process it and make sense of it all so that you can feel better it's one of the things that um this podcast has done for me is like these are like mini counseling sessions with each of the people that I get to meet and often they're for me like <laughs> you know I think I'm helping the other person when really that person's giving me insight into all of these things inside of my life um, because I've always said, you know, for example, the, the baby thing, I'm not sure that I want to have children. And sometimes I feel guilty when other people can't and I'm choosing not to. Mm-hmm. And it's just this interesting thing that I've only learned about myself in the last six months from doing this. And I wonder if maybe even just a conversation between a person that you, you don't know is the first step into like a miniature version of counselling. I'm not considering myself a counsellor. You are the counsellor. But don't you think that it's just a conversation? Potentially. Like there's a huge, enormous variety of um, things that can happen that bring someone to counselling. Sometimes they might have, you know, concerns in certain areas of their lives. Potentially they're just a bit worried maybe that it's something's being projected onto them of, you know, well, why are you feeling sad and... 
and perhaps they'd want to explore that. Um, so absolutely, it can be a conversation that sort of raises something that you hadn't thought of before that that maybe you want to go and get another perspective on. Yeah. So is, and I know that there's no correct way, but is counselling a good first step? You know, is that the first step that you took in your journey or was it a GP? Is, it, is there no right answer? I think it's absolutely individual. Um, and in crisis, going to the GP would be a first point of call. Um, however, for the more sort of everyday challenging worries, stresses, um, you know, feeling a bit off, you know, there are many different modalities that you can go that can help you to feel better, whether that's massage or, um, you know, you know, there's a huge variety Go, going to prayer, I don't know, exercise. like exercise. Um, Getting or... drunk with the girls on the weekend. <laughs> well, I'm not sure no. about <laughs> if I should endorse that. As a, uh, you know, now and then, Sometimes of course, all you need is help. a girls weekend. <laughs> Well, that's actually an interesting thing that I'd like to challenge because I think sometimes there's like memes out there that say, uh, you know, who needs therapy, a glass of wine and a chat with your best friend. Well, the reality is in the therapy room, something different happens and it's it's more than a conversation with a friend and you can have the most wonderful, supportive and beautiful friends, but they're not trained and professional listeners who can help you to explore and sort through issues that you might be experiencing. So... Um, absolutely there is a value in in all of that support and I think one of the messages that is important for me to get across is there is something unique that can be offered in a counselling session you don't have to be in crisis to get benefit from it it can help people to get a bit of clarity on where they're at in life and to normalise you know a lot of things that sometimes in our culture I think we discount what you said just then was a professional listener Mm mm-hmm is that not I've never heard that before Mm -hmm. like I sort of wondered whether it was a lot of you telling the person the next step but is it just listening and letting that conversation flow I don't know how does it work so it's providing a safe space for the client to externalize their internal reality and then supporting them through your training and knowledge and questioning to get some clarity on how they want to manage, whether it's their emotions, the problem they're experiencing, their relationship, their parenting. So I think there's a misperception that you go to a counsellor and they give you instructions on what to do next, and that's certainly not how I work. So So it's very much an exploration, and a very big part of it is... To provide a sounding board and yeah, so a listening ear. Do what's step one? Because I can imagine that a lot of people would come and see a counsellor and not know why they're here. Yes, that can be the case sometimes. So then the uh, the first session might simply be around getting clear on what they want out of the support that they are seeking, and or perhaps they're not sure what the problem is. So maybe the first session, and they may come and say, "I don't feel right," and I'm not really sure what the problem is. So that's that's the contract in a way, like that's that's what we're working on. So then I, then I'll start with my uh, questioning, exploration, and um, maybe sharing some theory to help them to sort out what the problem is. So. People come at all different stages. Sometimes they're very aware what the problem is and they know exactly, you know, what what they're here for and how they'll know it's been successful. 
So getting really solid and clear on that at the start uh, is important for success. And I think that's sometimes a big part of the work is actually getting clear on what it is you want to be different. So I'm sitting here in um, Karen's little consulting room here in Loxton and there's like a butcher's paper and a whiteboard. Is that Mm -hmm. where like goals and what you want to get out of it go? Because it's so, I never thought of it as a visual thing. I never thought of counselling as like a... Well, lots of counsellors work very differently. And there's no couch. No, no couch. (laughs) Uh, But there could be and that would be okay too. Um, But no, the whiteboard is not to write goals on. I'm not, that's not how I work. I work much more organically. So uh, that sort of contracting or or, uh, establishing what the client wants from the session happens in conversation early on. The whiteboard is for sharing some different theories and uh, information that I think might be useful for the client to understand or helps them to give some framework to their experiences Uh, and that's where my training and background come in handy because that sort of the simplicity of the theory um, and the ease and the language is is I I personally found it really helpful when I learned about it and and my clients do too I hope yeah I was trying to find this thing I was like while you're talking fumbling around on my phone trying to find this thing that I saw on I couldn't remember if it was on Instagram or Facebook and it was about Um, I don't know if you actually deal with this and I'm throwing you under the bus with it, but um, addiction, so Mm -hmm. whether it be drugs or alcohol or sex or all of those sorts of things, that um, all of those things aren't gateways that there are... And the thing concerned me where it was like they all start from childhood, like all of these things either start... And it's not obviously a rule, but these things all start from childhood and then they blow up over one small thing, which might seem like a small thing, but it's so under the surface. And it really, it's another thing that gets me, like if you have a shitty childhood, do you even get the choice? Do you, and that's like a thing for me, like if you're a shitty parent, like is it your fault that your kids end up, and I know that you can't tell me the answer to this and you're looking at me like, what are you doing? (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) But it's just one of those things that I'm like, Parenting is such an important thing Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you know it from your childhood, I know it from my childhood, that it can make and break people Mm -hmm. and it's only the dependence of the resilience of the person, whether they can... Did you take that into your parenting? Like, I just... And do you take it into your counselling? Like, do you do a lot of stuff with children and you go, shit, is, is there hope for this person? I don't know. Well... Oh, there's a lot in that question. I know. I took that too deep, didn't I? And I didn't know where to stop. <laughs> Terrible question. Uh, well, the, the first thing is, if I didn't believe we could make shifts and changes and that there was hope, I wouldn't be doing this work. So, Good answer. So clearly, um, and, I, and I agree that childhood experiences impact the way we are in the world as adults. Um, and to deny that is unrealistic, in my opinion. So a lot of my work can reflect or, or um, you know, address potentially things that happen in childhood that might be affecting how people are managing now. But then there are so many other variables that play into mental health and well-being um, and, and our experiences of, you know, things like anxiety and depression. Um, and... I, th- I think that trauma is a part of that and addressing that is important but also there's a lot of other 
things around, um, you know, how we exercise and eat, eating and our connection to others and, and relationships. And um, so I think it's really multifaceted. So if, you're sort of, if your question is about are you doomed if you had a difficult childhood, I, my short answer is no, I don't believe so. I, but if you recognise that things uh, weren't healthy or as good as they could have been, getting some support with that I imagine would be really helpful. But like even to the point where I'm, I'm talking like minor things, I had a what I consider to be an excellent childhood, but, you know, like my parents drank and not like drank too much but they drank too much for what i would consider to be a healthy amount mm-hmm. and so i i went up until i like i don't drink because i didn't like the way that that made me feel as a child yeah um i'll have the occasional drink but not a you know not on a wednesday night just because mm-hmm. um and just yeah there's some things that i went oh, i didn't like that so i've implemented the opposite into my life mm-hmm. and it was also like a learning experience that okay I didn't like the way that you did that so I'm not going to and I'm going to change it up mm-hmm. um what I have found from doing this is that women now are finally comfortable talking about things and it can be anything and I didn't feel that way when I was in high school like I didn't feel like other women were ready to talk about their life and I know that there's parts of people's lives that they don't want to talk about and that's okay or only with a select few that's understandable but do you find that most of your clients are women no absolutely no. not so I ha- it, no it's absolutely across the board like and young through to very old so um that's great. what is I'm very so- old though <laughs> <laughs> it's, you're never too old like no. either like and I love that but I always find it so hard to get actual feelings out of men Mm -hmm. and that's probably because I'm not a trained professional like you are but now I'm just like I'm so glad that women are open to talking about all of these different things and the good stuff too Mm -hmm. because I think that we get so stuck on trying to be positive all the time what I found yeah that that only being like okay I want you to find the positive in that and you probably do it with counseling and you're probably looking at me like don't tell people to stop finding the positives, but acknowledging the negatives, uh, like acknowledging that yeah, absolutely. that shit thing happens. Yes, so I think it's about being real. And I remember uh, hearing this sort of metaphor that made sense that like a, a beautiful piece of music has high notes and low notes. And if you're just paying the, hu- the high notes all the time, then you're not going to get that depth of experience and and joy that is a great song so my experience is life is like that and if we just attempt to suppress the negative feelings and and not process them then that's going to have detrimental effects in the long term and so absolutely it's great to uh, acknowledge all aspects of being human so we're living a deep life and a and a you know, the, the depth and the breadth of life. So personally, I, I like to take things deeper and that's probably why I do what I do. Um, but, you know, sometimes we need a rest from that. We just want things to be simple and easy and not to focus on stuff. And that's okay too in the short term. Short term, yeah. yeah. So And they're coping mechanisms and they're useful in, in 
appropriate way. And I think it's when those ways of managing stop working that then people potentially come to see someone like me where, you know, um, perhaps they've kept busy to not reflect on painful feelings or um, focused on the positive or their optimism and suddenly they can't seem to maintain that anymore. And so when things stop being as effective as they used to be over time, then that's potentially where there's this time period before you're in crisis but when you're starting to sense that things aren't how maybe as good as they could be that's the sweet spot in my opinion (laughs) (laughs) I'm loving hearing all of these coping mechanisms because I find them in life like I find them in small amounts in my own life I find them in larger amounts in other people's lives and the keeping busy one was something that you know resonated with me Um, and I'm sure a lot of other people, you know, um, just being a working person, you're always like, I need to find the next thing to do. And, um, and I had a quiet weekend this weekend and everyone's, how's your weekend? I'm like, oh, it's a bit boring really. Mm. When I thought, no, I took some time out for myself to actually recover. What, uh, what's the most thing that people could find their coping mechanism? Like what are a couple other ones? So Uh, keeping yourself busy. Yeah, so in TA theory, we talk about driver behaviours, which are are coping behaviours that we often learn, or not often, we do learn them in childhood. So uh, one is to sort of work harder or keep busy, and another is to uh, be pleasing. So focus on everybody else's needs, but don't recognise or acknowledge that you have needs and wants. Or if you do have them, don't articulate them, just suppress them. (laughs) Or be perfect so that no one can, you know... um, you don't allow mistakes so you're just attempting to use your energy to maintain this level of achievement or perfection that you have uh, internally created for yourself and all of these behaviors are about keeping yourself safe so it's about survival on some level Um, yeah so or be strong is another one so you know be stoic soldier on um, you know don't allow that vulnerability to be there so those kinds of coping behaviours are what can shift in counselling sessions uh, where recognising and talking about how you are managing and whether it's helpful to you and on what level those coping behaviours are um, where you want them to be and are they are they helpful to you yeah and one of the things that I've um, I was talking to Donna the other week and she said something about comparison being like the scariest thing like when you start comparing yourself to others and your Mm -hmm. happiness and your idea of wealth and those sorts of things um that's one thing that I could see myself getting caught up in is comparison and competitiveness and those sorts of things well there's a lot of interesting research about the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion and uh, self-esteem is really related to where do I rank in terms of other people and it's sort of tied to comparison in a way whereas self-compassion is about just having that uh, love for yourself no matter where you're at and I think that mental health um, you know needs to have room for uh, compassion for yourself and and the reality of life which is we make mistakes and sometimes bad stuff happens and we need to manage it and and do your best I was listening to this thing that said something along the lines of um, you can't respect other people until you genuinely respect yourself Mm -hmm. and that's one thing that I when I talk to my friends and um, and those sorts of things like 
do you truly admit that you love yourself and respect yourself? And I don't think that there are many people that could say wholeheartedly that they do. Mm -hmm. And if they do, good on them. But are you lying? You know, because there's parts of me that I don't love and that I want to work on and and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But that's something to really work towards, isn't it? Like 100% loving you even if you're not perfect. Or do you not have to? Uh, I don't know if there's an easy answer to that question. It depends on the individual yeah. and where they're coming from and uh, how they how they perceive um, having balance is. So, but my sense is that, you know, we want to live our best life and if there's a sense of... Uh, lack of worth on some level or or lack of self-love if that's how you want to express it and that's impacting your ability to connect and engage with life and to be intimate with yourself and with others in terms of authentic being authentic yeah um, then they are potential things that people can come and get therapy and counseling yeah. about to sort through so when do you know that you've done your job when the client has got what they came for, which is established session to session and also an overarching uh, understanding f- from the beginning. Yeah, so, so say the overarching desire might be to have a sense of your own worth that's lacking and session to session might be this happened this week and I felt crap about it and I want to sort out what that's about. So each session... At the end of the session, um, I'll ask for feedback and say, "Was uh, my hope is this was useful to you on some level?" And and most often clients will say, "Absolutely." And and if not, then we'll reassess whether it's a good fit or yeah, where it went off track. And yeah, so it's just constantly being real about it and checking in with the client. And yeah. um, my friend who's a physio, I said to her like when do you know you've done your job and she said when they don't come back mm-hmm. is because I can see counseling being one of those things that are like I would love it like I love talking about the way I feel and all mm-hmm. of that probably too much and people stop listening but is your genuine end game that they don't come back or is it something that you're just constantly working on I'm guessing everybody's different but is the mm-hmm. aim that absolutely that ends yeah so we want autonomy we want to support clients' autonomy, which goes back to an earlier question about providing space for the client to sort out what needs to happen for them to get more clarity and feel more stable within themselves. And I can't know that because I'm not them. Yeah. So all I'm doing is using my skills and knowledge to facilitate the client to connect to what they need and want to happen in their life and to give them encouragement and support once they figure that out. So absolutely there is an end point and that's determined by the client. However, in saying that, if someone's had a particularly traumatic childhood, for example, that may be a very different experience and take a lot longer than someone who's coming in for a situational, um, something that's situational, that that can be sorted much quicker. Um, And there's massive different variations on that theme. Yeah, I I can imagine. (laughs) And somebody that's... uh open and sharing it makes your job a lot easier i'm guessing than if you have to draw things out of them i don't know i just think oh surely she must be able to read my mind but you can't like you have to give you something to work with 
Absolutely. Um, and I suppose there's a certain amount of skill in, in reading people, but by, at its core it's about developing rapport and trust and having clients feel safe enough to disclose what's really going on under the surface. And that may not happen in the first session or no. two sessions or whoever knows how long. I mean, reality dictates that if you have really uh, very solid defence mechanisms and and allowing yourself to trust someone is difficult for you, then that may take a lot of time and that may be the work in the initial stages of therapy if someone's coming for some deeper work. So it's it's completely dependent on where the client is at. Yeah, in where and where they want to go. I don't know. I, I'm one of those um, people that... And I'm proud, like I'm a proud person. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I don't need counselling. I probably need counselling just more than anybody else. But I I am so proud of people that go. Like I'm just like, yes, you do that. Like you make yourself a better person. Mm-hmm. But I don't know why I haven't. Maybe, maybe we should do a counselling session just so that I can know what it's about, so that I can tell people that it's an amazing experience or that it's not, that it's scary and that it's sometimes overwhelming mm-hmm. is that a feeling so it's all those things yeah and more depending on the person yeah I can because um when I sort of started my finding myself journey or whatever bullshit you want to call it I went to this witch doctor I call her that I don't actually know what she did but I'm not a big crier mm-hmm. and um I cry in Disney movies and cartoons and stuff like that but in real life i Anyway, I just sat down and I just started crying and I didn't really know why and and asked me all of these questions which I just answered up front because if you ask me a question, I'll answer it because mm-hmm. I'm an open book, I think. I don't know. And I answered them and she's like, oh, okay. And how does that make you feel? I'm like, nothing. It's a, it happened and moving on. Mm-hmm. But obviously I didn't. Like there's all of these things that happened in my life that I didn't move on from that I thought I had because I'm so blasé about them. And it's only now, like 10, 15 years later, that I'm actually dealing with them. And that's a scary thought, that mm-hmm. you think you've dealt with stuff and you haven't. You'd see that a lot, I'm sure. Absolutely. Like, we all have ways of uh, not letting ourselves know what we know. So, um, and that's a protective mechanism. And when we have pain and we are children and we have we don't have the capacity to know how to process it. And if we happen to have parents who, who aren't skilled up in helping us with that, then we need to survive. So we put whatever measures we need to in place to get through. And part of that might be something like a be strong driver, so be stoic. Uh, I, won't, I won't connect with those feelings because I don't know how to deal with them. So I'll focus on other things and and fast forward 20 years and, and suddenly you're teary and you don't know why and potentially... Are you talking about me, Karen? <laughs> or anyone. No, I'm not talking about you. No, no, I know. But it's, yeah. it's, it's really interesting and it's something that I can't wait to learn more about. Mental health is something that I've never really invested my time in mm-hmm. learning about. And I guess when people think mental health, they initially think depression, anxiety, all of those things. But it's not, is it? Mental health is general wellness of the mind. Absolutely. And everything's on a continuum in my experience. So, you know, 
um, on one end is sad feelings and on the other end is extreme depression and there's this massive space in the middle and I think often in our culture we think we have to be right on the extreme end before we uh, you know give ourselves permission to go and get support and help and I definitely think it's a cultural thing um, and you know in other cultures it's quite appropriate to go and see your counsellor just sort of for a checkup, like you would go to the GP for a checkup. Like, you, I'm just going to my therapist. It's a given. It's it's not a, a big deal thing. So. And it's something that people feel comfortable about talking about. Absolutely. Like, oh, I went to my therapist. We found this out. Yeah. Like, great. Yeah. That's fantastic. I know a few people that have gone to counselling and um, some that have got a lot out of it and some that haven't. But I think that that's also on a personal how much you let yourself get out of it well potentially but also it just might not be a good fit so Mm. if if you don't feel that uh rapport or that sense of trust in the person that you go to see then just try someone else and I always am really open about that and forthcoming and I'm not going to fall in a heap if it's not a good fit for you and you know for whatever reason maybe the way I work isn't isn't resonating with you and that's fine yeah I say the same thing to my marriage because I'm a um, marriage celebrant I say the same thing like if you don't like me don't let me marry you Mm -hmm. you know like this is an important part of your day of your life like if you don't think that I'm the right person to stand up there and marry you just let me know I'm not going to take offense to it yeah I'll make sure that you know I try and change that part that you didn't like but as a rule I think that your demeanor will attract the right sort of customer anyway the right sort of client for you Mm um i'm guessing that um if they wanted somebody to be gentle which i've known you for five minutes but you seem like a very gentle compassionate person that you'd know that straight away i felt that Mm -hmm. i felt comfortable talking to you well again everyone is different but um if you're allowing yourself to connect to your intuition and you, in my experience, you know, you, you end whatever interaction it is and you feel good, then that's probably a good sign that give it a go. Like if you end the interaction, whatever it is, and you you don't feel right, listen to that. Yeah, listen and, to your gut. But if it's in terms of looking for some support of counselling or therapy, try again. Just try someone else. I keep trying till you find the right that's one. That's right. I was saying this to Tess and I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't agree with what my GP had to say. She's like, and she's like, same. And I'm like, I went to three GPs until I found somebody that would listen. And I guess it's not in the sense of listening, but it's listening in the right way with your stuff. So for the people listening at home, what are three things that they can take away? What is something that you can give them some homework to do? Well, I don't give homework. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) However, like just throwing some balls in the air of, of what, if you choose to catch it Uh, so the first thing would probably be um, you know many experiences in life can have us feeling a bit overwhelmed or wobbly and even positive experiences involve change and all change involves loss on some level so acknowledging that and and allowing that um, is an important part of being connected to reality and 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 who you authentically are and that's okay and then the second thing would be um if you're in that space and you're feeling a bit confused 
You don't have to wait until it becomes a crisis to go and get some professional support. And seeing a counsellor is different than talking to a friend. Um, And it's different to talking to a GP too. Absolutely. And one therapist to another is completely different. So I think giving yourself permission to get support if you feel that it would be helpful or if you just want to explore and see what it's like is a good thing. Uh, And then... Um, I think that counselling can really help you to, to process and manage what you're going through. And I think particularly for women, often we struggle to prioritise ourselves in that way. But in my experience, it's really an investment in not just yourself, it's an investment in your family because often, you know, the pivotal sort of person in the family is is the mother. And so if if... If, if as mothers or as females in the relationship we're feeling really sorted and calm and connected to who we really are and okay, then that's going to have flow-on effects to all the people that we are connected to. So it's actually really an investment in, in all of that. So that, that would be, you know, my hope for people who maybe are on the fence about whether it would be useful or helpful to go and get some support that would be what I would want them to know. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know this, but is what you do covered under Medicare? Is it something that people just invest in? I don't know, how does it work? Because I'm sure that people at home are thinking, okay, well, if this is something I want to do, how do I go about it? Yeah, so the service that I provide is a a fee-for-service, so it's not a Medicare rebate, and there's no requirement to go to a GP or have a referral. so yeah so that's it if you feel that it you want to have a session and see what it's like you don't need to go see a gp first no you would just like ring and make an appointment and and take things from there yeah yeah and i guess for anybody that's listening that is at the point of crisis uh gp or a helpline is what you're recommending uh like absolutely yeah so um yeah go to a crisis service basically yeah. yeah But, um, I mean, we've done uh, a lot of chatting on here about how you got to your journey. And one of the things that I said that I like to ask everybody is three things that they don't like. And I gave these to you in advance so that you could think about them. (laughs) Because I could see you over... When I'm like, I ask everybody, she started overthinking. (laughs) It's like these answers aren't pivotal. So what are the three things for everybody listening at home that you absolutely hate? Well, I really want to preface this by saying I, I don't know that I actually hate them. Oh, that's cheating. <laughs> that's cheating. <laughs> so I had to think really Typical hard. Typical counsellor. I have to stay positive. <laughs> Go. No, not at all. Um, but I really don't like being overstimulated. So, so when I'm at home especially, I like things to be calm and quiet. So I don't like it if the TV's and the radio's on and all the lights are on and there's someone on the phone talking loudly and the dog's barking. I have to simplify things. I have to turn things off and just have this nice sort of quiet place. So being overstimulated in in that at home, especially at home, I think that needs to be my I think a lot of people would feel like that though. Like I hate music festivals. I hate the loud and the people, so many people. So I'm with you on that. What's number two? Number two, uh, if I am somewhere and no one is really in charge and there's no plan and we're just walking around aimlessly, like if you're out socially, especially if I have high heels on and my feet are hurting, 
I'm not I'm not okay with that. Are you often the person that makes the plans? <laughs> uh, I'm usually see I'm in many ways I think I go along with everybody else, but then I like to have a whinge when it doesn't seem to be organized. <laughs> I like to, to complain but not do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So I realize I, I probably play into yes, the dynamic. Yeah. I'm glad it. that you're you're aware of this issue. <laughs> um, and number three. I I really don't like gossip, so um, especially when gossip about celebrities is is presented as if it's news. So, but generally, gossip in general, I I'm, I'm not on board with that. And and maybe because, um, you know, I'm just not interested in that stuff. Like, um, I don't I don't have a curiosity about it. So, but also, I just think think it's really unhealthy to. It's you'd see it a lot. I mean, we both live in a small country town, and mm-hmm. you can see that um, there's two versions of the community that we live in. This super supportive, amazing one that you know is there when we need them, and then there's also like that dark side of everybody knowing everybody's business, mm-hmm. and it is a scary thing, isn't it? I'm one of those people that um, I don't, I don't like pushing gossip but I'll I don't know I listen and I probably feed into it and I shouldn't but it is something that I can see would really haunt some people and even true gossip I don't know if that's the right word but you know actual fact that's none of anybody's business I imagine it's a lot to do with intention so um if if your life crisis or difficulties your experience are fodder for someone else's entertainment I'm not okay with that I don't want to participate in that at all if you're feeling genuine concern on hearing news about someone and you're distressed about it and you feel you need to talk to your friend that you heard something that's a different feel but so I think it's about reading where is it's this coming from the ethical background of the yeah. gossip <laughs> but I as you noted earlier I, I probably overthink things yes <laughs> But I love some ethics and I like overthinking those sorts of things too. So I'm with you. Yeah. And I and I try to work on something from every thing that I do. And it is something that I need to do to stop talking about other people, mm-hmm. whether it's positive or negative. Like if it's something that I don't think that they'd want people to know, then I, I'm not going to say it. That's what I'm going to work on from this episode. <laughs> oh, good on you. <laughs> well, I can't believe it's been like 45 minutes already. I told you that it wasn't going to take long at all. But I hope, I mean, I feel like I personally got something out of this. For, for anything, like I got a counselling session. So thanks for everybody for listening in. <laughs> well, you actually didn't. This was not a counselling <laughs> session. But if you want to turn the microphone off and, and pay me a fee, then we can do a counselling session. <laughs> but um, I hope that everybody that's listening knows that it's okay to give you a call, book an appointment and know that it's a safe place. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, on, I'll pop in the end of this um, some hotline numbers if there is anybody that needs some crisis help. Um, but in all, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Well, I hope show. that your per- first podcast wasn't too terrible. <laughs> it wasn't know. too scary. I'll have to listen to it first before I can make, an, make a judgment on well, it. Well, I can guarantee that after doing this many um, podcasts that listening to yourself is not the best. It's <laughs> not the best port of call. It's listening to what all of your friends and family think. So I can't wait to hear what everybody um, thinks. And once again, thank you so much for being on. And until next time, keep doing you, gals. Oh. Thank you.